0: I think we should put wheels on this That are big enough so that I can, like, ride it out (laughs) Right? It's got some potential It's got some potential Alright, let's pray And then I'm going to read Joshua chapter 1 Verses 1 to 10 And then I'm going to preach it for a while Um, If you're new with us We're doing a series called The Gospel Through the Bible But since that series is probably going to be about two years long we We have cut it up into parts So it's easier So this part about six weeks or so is called Kingdom: the Rise and Fall of a Nation um, and it 's about the, the people of God becoming a nation in the land of Israel and then losing that nation in the land of Israel, and what we can understand about the gospel, um, the good news about God and how God works and how God functions and how God saves and delivers and judges and chastens and re- and renews because um, a lot of that stuff hasn 't changed a bit so let 's pray Father, we pray that you 'd help us to understand how the message of the book of Joshua is a message at least on some way, on some level, about Christ, the work of Christ, the nature of faith, how you redeem, what you do, what we are meant to be. Help us to see that this morning. Help me to communicate it faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The word of the Lord. Saturday, we had our sort of like our church gathering at Um, Devil's Lake Up At Devil's Lake And Yeah Um And uh So I went up there at nine To kind of To get a spot And um so I was trying to write my sermon, and on the uh, picnic table I was writing on, there were like an- love initials carved in there, which always bothered me because nobody ever finishes the equation. It's so and so plus so and so, and that never equals anything, right? I mean, you're like, you're just kind of left hanging as to the equation, you know, um, and, uh, but I, it reminded me of um, when my family and I were in Mount Rushmore earlier this year. We went on this vacation, and we went to Mount Rushmore, and in the Mount Rushmore Museum. There is a video of FDR giving a speech Dedicating the Rushmore monument Where he says um, In not a quarter of an inch In 10,000 years will wear away Now on Rushmore's official website It's one inch to 10,000 years But not the first politician ever to exaggerate, right? But what I was thinking was That therefore if I carved Nick Gibson plus Alexi Gibson For a really long time Into rock like, that would be like a memorial to our love for 10,000 years. That's moderately romantic, right? And so I, I was thinking about this, and I, and, but then I was reading the book of Joshua this week. And what I realized was, the question is not, will the sun and moon and every passerby for 10,000 years remember that Nick and Alexi loved each other? The big question is, will for the rest of our lives, Nick and Alexi remember that we love each other? And do it! Right? And so we had a date night this week, Um, and so we went out, and I I brought with me—I brought with me the wedding album. Because I was like, you know, we go out on these things, and we're supposed to be remembering that we love each other. That's kind of the whole point of date night. It's like, yes, we have these kids. Yes, we want to kill each other and them, but we love each other, don't we? right and so you know we normally just go out to the vietnamese restaurant and have one of those wonderful thai teas and a huge bowl of soup but um, but i was like you know we gotta, we got we should take this as an opportunity like i've been to like 14 we've been on like 14 you know anniversaries now and we don't on our anniversary we don't really remember what we're doing and the the reason why i think that's really critical is because a lot of time i think people essentially misunderstand what faith is in the book of Joshua, is all about faith, and what it teaches about faith hasn't changed a darn bit, okay? But it's 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 about faith acting, right? The the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God is like, here's here's what it means to be my people. Here are my promises. Here's 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 how we're going to relate to each other. Here's all, here's what I'm going to do. Here's the here, right. He does. God does all the talking mostly, right? He affirms the covenant. Here we are. And then what's Joshua? It's okay. Now go do it. Right? That's what Joshua is. It's just, okay, there it is. Now, off you go, right? And the story of Joshua Joshua is that there was a generation in in Deuteronomy that didn't want to do it he said okay guys time to go in and they, and they went and they were like no um, there's actually big giants they're gonna kill us and and God's reaction to that was okay fine well you'll, you guys can live in the desert then I guess and I'll die and then you know your kids so, so the kids all grow up there's two 80 year olds left right Joshua and Caleb and God sends the 80 year olds and the 40 year olds and on down into the land right and Joshua is that story God talking to 80 year old number one and being like okay you feeling feeling pretty spry and Joshua's like I'm ready to roll And he goes, okay, now let's go Because you're going to go and do what you believe You're going to go do it, okay And see, this is one of the things that people get confused about about faith Because a lot of people believe that faith is the easy way out, right Life is full of uncertainties, and choices have to be made And religious people believe in these fairy tales So they don't have to face life's uncertainties Instead of being smart and scientific and looking to the empirical realities that we really can predict and living that out as much as possible, they live off in this easy la-la land of faith, 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 blah, 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 how you'd like it to turn out. Complete misunderstanding of biblical faith. Though a lot of Christians do live up to that stereotype. Right? In the Bible, here's what faith is. And Joshua's all about this. This is the vector of belief. You're gonna die. Okay, it's impossible that this is gonna work out. This is the pragmatic way Where things have been empirically verified This stuff tends to work out Living for yourself, doing this thing Working it your own way Managing your own life But this is where God told you to go I want you to go into this land With people with more weapons than you That are five feet taller than you That are in walled cities You don't even have any chariots Or basically any horses You're going to get destroyed I want you to go in there And take over every single city It's impossible. And you see, once you realize that, you realize that every person that claims to have faith is going to get said in their face by God, listen, you need to be strong and courageous. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. All these promises that I swore to your forefathers, I'm going to do, but all of them assume you walking in that direction— You've got to walk into them. They don't just happen. So you've got to be strong and courageous. You can't forget about this book. You can't forget about what I said. You've got to meditate on day and night so it's in here, so it'll come out here, and you've got to be strong, and you've got to be courageous. And you're going to want to be disappointed, and you're going to want to be terrified. Don't be. Don't let it have you. Don't give your heart to that fear, and don't fall to that discouragement. You've got to fight this. You've got to walk, and you've got to be strong and courageous. And you've got to do on the basis that I have told you many times— I will be with you wherever you go, and every single promise I promised, I will do. Now, if you recognize, now you might not believe in that, that's fine, but that's how the Bible talks about faith. It's not this little, like, oh, I believe in this, open to the masses stuff. It's there is an unacceptable, completely difficult, unattainable thing that cannot happen. And we're to walk directly towards it, believing that some providence, something, is going to come up under our feet. Now, once you realize that, um, something's going to come into your mind like, how on earth, how honestly, how does that kind of faith get produced? Who does that? Who does that kind of faith? Who believes like that? I mean, how much of that kind of faith do you think is in this room right now? Probably not all, not as much as there could be, probably. And so the story of Joshua is an incredibly important story. So for those of you who aren't familiar with um, this portion of scripture, let me just give a quick outline. So the story of Joshua is the story of the conquest. The people were in in Egypt as slaves. God saves them out to become a people in this desert area where it's not really wonderfully habitable, right? He has to— Give them food, right? And so, but he's promised to take them into the land of Canaan, the land of, the land of Israel, and he said, I'm going to give it to you. But there's people living there, and I'm going to be doing two things at one time. He says, I've waited 430 years longer than they deserved to judge the Canaanites. And it's, it's finally time. And you're going to go in there, and you're going to kill everyone. You're going to destroy every major city. You're going to burn them all to the ground. And in those cities, you're going to kill everyone. In fact, in a number number of them, you're not even going to let the animals live. And everywhere you set your foot, I'm going to give you this land. And after you take it, you split it up. And and so what what happens is Joshua goes in, and everybody has to fight together against the cities. All the cities have city kings, and all the Israelites, they don't go to their— like when they take over the first bit of land, one tribe doesn't stay there, and then the next 11 go on. That's not how it works. Everybody fights the whole gig, all the cities, and then the land gets divided, and then your tribe has to take over the rest of the land yourself. Right? And so they go through all these battles with the the leaders of the city-states, and then all of the different areas get split up, and then the Israelites are supposed to take over the rest of their land in the rural areas. Okay? Now, um, once that gets finished, they build build the first tabernacle in Shiloh, which Shiloh means place of resting. And this is partly because what God said was the ultimate result of this was that he would give them land— And when they had their own land, he would be able to give them rest. Because ultimately, peace, what the Bible calls shalom, that is morally just woven peace, is the way things were meant to be. And that when he gave them this land, he would be able to put them at rest, and they would have a place of resting. And so they built the tabernacle at Shiloh. Now there's nothing there anymore, but graduate students who go to Israel, go to the site of Shiloh— this is important. All of you single Christian girls, you need this shirt right here because it shows that you're serious about your faith because it has Green Bay Packers in Hebrew and that your sports loyalties are right, okay? <laughs> but you don't want this one because that's a misspelling of bay in Hebrew. You want the aleph, not the yod, okay? So don't be this person. That's just inaccurate Hebrew, okay? Now, back to it, okay. So, and we're back. So one of the, one of the difficulties here is this is that I would love to just jump into and talk about how the book of Joshua is about faith, but here's the problem. For a lot of modern people, the book of Joshua is the most difficult book in the Bible to stomach morally. It's the one they find the most offensive. Because when they read the description of going in and and doing what in Hebrews called the haram, things that are devoted to the Lord and are completely destroyed, that sounds a lot like genocide. Right? And they're like, that's genocide Because, I mean, he says, kill the Jebus I mean, he, he uses racial terms I mean, these are peoples And he says, kill all of them I mean, what, how is that not morally repugnant? And how is the God, therefore, of Joshua Not a moral monster, right? And then there's, of course, the other one Is, did this even happen? I mean, it's the ancient book And since 1400 BC Did this, any of this stuff ever happen? Now, um, in terms of did it ever happen Is that, actually, there's, there's a lot of pretty good evidence for that but one thing to look at is the excavation of Jericho. But let me just this us read you a quote. This is, was found in the uh, papyri—I'm sorry, the tablets of Amenhotep IV, one of the pharaohs of Egypt. He ruled from 1378 to 1367. And he got this letter from one of the, administ- the Jebusite administrators of Jerusalem. Okay, this has been uncovered archaeologically. This is what it says. Why do you not hear my plea? All the governors are lost. These are all the city kings of Israel because apparently Israel was subjugated to the Egyptian pharaoh at that time, right? So he's, he's saying all the, all the city leaders in Israel have all been lost. They're all dead. Let my lord the king send troops of archers or the king will have no lands left. All the lands of the, of the king are being plundered by the Habirus. Sound familiar? The Habiru people. If archers are not here by the end of the year Then the lands of my lord the king If archers are here by the end of the year Then the lands of my lord the king will continue to exist But if the archers are not sent Then the lands of the king my lord will be surrendered So There's a document From one of the Israelite enemies Saying the conquest happened exactly when the bible said it did That's all I'm saying Let's just leave it at that Because the moral question is actually a more difficult one, isn't it? Okay, if it happened Maybe that's just as bad, right? Right? <laughs> So what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that God says, I want you to go in this place, I want you to kill everybody? Now the first is, is that a lot of people have, create a a logic problem in the beginning of it, which makes that objection sound a lot stronger than it is. Because you have to make a decision at the very beginning whether you believe that the biblical command to kill all of these people is a command that a bunch of people made up so they could put a religious stamp of approval on their massacre— or whether this is actually a real command of God You've got to make that choice up front Or you don't have clear logic in your objection Does that make sense? Now, if you believe it was a supposed command that These people are just using religion as a reason to kill people They made it up, right? It's an insincere and illegitimate statement But it's not a God question It's a religious question It's not a question of is the God of the Bible good It's a question of is religion inherently bad That's a different argument Now, that's one we can have sometime, but I can't fit in my sermon right now, okay? It's not a current argument against God or the God of the Bible. Now, if you believe it's a real command, then the Israelites' behavior or actions are simply the, the doing of a command that comes from the authority of God, not on their own authority, that fundamentally changes the moral philosophy of what's happening. Because God as a moral actor is not the same as a human moral actor. For example, why can God kill somebody and I can't? Because God can bring people back to life. That's why That's why He has a fundamentally different relationship To the administration of life So he has a fundamentally different moral relationship to it That's different than me So he can tell me if I murder somebody If I kill somebody I should be killed And he can say about himself, listen It's up to me to decide who, who deserves this and who doesn't And I can do what I want Right? Once you realize that The command can be Now it doesn't mean it is But it can be sincere, legitimate, accurate, and just. And you have to assess it based on its merits. You can't wave your hand and say, oh, that's genocide. Unless you believe categorically that a group of people can't have sufficient guilt to be executed. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting discussion, but if you look at the Bible, God has a pretty reasonable track record on this. For example, in the book of Genesis, when he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember how this conversation with Abraham goes? He go, tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to go destroy Sodom. And Abraham has the same objection all of us would naturally have morally, right? Thank you. If you go and destroy a whole city, there's going to be a bunch of righteous people in them. not Maybe not many, but you'll kill them when you kill the wicked people, and so you can't do it, Right? That's the argument That's the same argument we would all make And what's God's response to that? You're right I wouldn't do that And so Abraham says Well, if there's 40 people You won't destroy the city He goes, right 30 people? 20 people? 10 people? He gets right down to it And God says, nope If there's that many righteous people I won't destroy the city But God's still there He knows what he's doing, right? He goes down and he destroys the city Why? Because, because Abraham had the false premise Not God The false premise was There's at least five righteous people And there weren't in fact, God saved some unrighteous people out of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The family that has incest to create offspring, that was the family righteous enough that God didn't kill them with Sodom and Gomorrah. See, when, when God does one of these things— He doesn't seem to do it very lightly. And one of the things that the Israelites demonstrate in their own, in their own in their own scriptures is that whenever they went and tried to fight somebody and they didn't have a direct command from God, they got their pants whipped. There's at least three different times among the Israelites where they're like, we're going to go kill these people. God's with us. And God wasn't with them. And they got destroyed because they saw within their own understanding of God that there are times when God gives a clear, direct revelation to do something. And there are times we didn't. That's why the Israelite king couldn't call up the people to war to go and wipe out a people. He could call them up to war to defend, but he couldn't, he couldn't call them up to war to go and wipe out a whole area. That could only be called by the prophet because it could only come directly from God. Right? Now, the other thing is the Canaanites, because people often think well, how bad could they, I mean, how bad could they have been? I mean, it's a desert. Right? Well, I would encourage you to study the history of Canaanites. Augustine in the 4th century— St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. And in The City of God, he, ta- he talked about how he really didn't like Christians going to the plays in the Roman cities, that especially the ones that were about the Roman gods. And here's—this here, was his Egyptian. He's like, I'm not saying that going to a play, or a film for us maybe, right, I'm, is f- fundamentally wrong because it's not Christian. What I'm saying is the play glorifies the Roman gods. And here's the thing about the Ro- Roman gods— they're terrible. <laughs> they kill their children. They have incest. They have tons of co- consorts. They do whatever they want to do. And here's the thing, you guys. You've got to realize this. Augustine's saying to the Christians, people become like what they worship. If those are your gods, you're going to become like them. So you can ask this question. What were the gods of the Canaanites like? Baal and Annal, or Anath, or Aneth. Well, Baal was bad enough, Right? To get, he was so bloodthirsty a God that when the 400 prophets of Baal tried to beat Elijah, right? Remember they are trying to get Baal's attention? This is in—I can't remember this 1st, 2nd Kings now. What did they do? Cut themselves, right? To bleed. Why? Be, because, you know, you think that well, that's just sacrifice. So Baal really wanted a good sacrifice. No, Baal and Anath were bloodthirsty gods. And they loved blood. They were the patron gods of fertility and war. Now, if you live in an agrarian culture where people are constantly trying to kill you, and you want to make up your own gods, right? That's pretty—that's pretty empirically verified, right? And so, one, they didn't—they did not hold life sacred at all. Most of the cultures of the ancient Near East killed whatever kids they wanted to, but especially the Canaanites. They just— just put, you didn't want the kid? Just put it in fire. That's no, no problem. Keep the ones you want. Burn the ones you want to the gods. The gods will take the child you burn up and give you more stronger children because they're the gods of fertility. And when you sacrifice your fertility to them, they will bless you with more, better and stronger. Right? And you say, well, wait, so they go in and they kill the children. Listen, chil- children were not sacred to these people. For a people to find human life sacred, it's either all the kids or none of them, Either every kid is sacred or the kids that you keep are just your pets Like you can kill whatever dog you want, but my dog is special. You could never do anything to that That's called a pet When you don't care about the race or the species of a being, but you love yours That's what we do with dogs And that's what the Canaanites did with children And I won't push this any further with us right now And then secondly, because they worshipped fertility the kind of sexual debauchery that was just rampant throughout the culture was insane. And therefore, illegitimacy of birth, and therefore, burn the child alive, right? In fact, in Leviticus 18, that list of sexual sins that we don't like so much, it starts like this. God says, you're leaving Egypt and you're going into Canaan. When you go into Canaan, you need to not do what they do. Therefore, don't do these things. Now, what, why did he include the things on that list? Because there's a lot of stuff that's not on that list. It doesn't say not to have relations with your brother or sister. But it says a whole bunch of other stuff. Why? Well, it's a selection of Canaanite actions, (laughs) which includes incest, ritual heterosexual prostitution, ritual homosexual prostitution, and bestiality. It was was pretty bad. But in addition to that, it wasn't just the debauchery, but it was the bloodthirstiness, especially of the female deity. William Albright, a person who spent a lot of his life excavating— the history of the Canaanites said this about their female consort, God, Baal's main consort, Anath. The blood was so deep that she waded through that it was up to her knees, nay, up to her neck. Under her feet were human heads. Above her, hands flew like locusts. In her sensuous delight, she decorated herself with the suspended heads while she attached hands to her girdle. Her joy at the butchery is described in even more sadistic language. Quote, Her liver swelled with laughter. Her heart was full of joy. The liver of Anath was full of exultation. You've got to be careful who your gods are. And one of the things that I think is important, because it's often very secular people who make the most direct attacks on the Bible in this, and here's the thing that I think is important to also recognize. Most of the people who are very secular in this thing, and I— Okay, this might offend you a little bit, but just consider it. Most of those people vote blue, okay? And built into the political philosophy of that movement is corporate moral connectedness, right? It's, It's part of it. That's not crazy. That's just part of the philosophy, right? So you and I are morally accountable to each other. I am responsible to you. You're responsible to me, morally speaking, right? Now, if you believe that, you have to believe in the potential of shared guilt, well, how high can that shared guilt go? Can that shared guilt get to the point of execution if God is judging us on the basis of what we deserve? Is that possible? Because you see, in the Bible, there's, the Bible agrees with that to a certain extent. In Scripture, there are a number of places— for example, in the Torah, why is human execution— why does it almost always have to be done by the means of stoning— it's not the most public, and it's not the greatest deterrent, right? The Egyptian people used to impale people. Just get a sharp stick and drop you on it, and let you die slowly over three days. That'll get people's attention. It did get people's attention. Crucifixion, the same thing, right? You nail people to something, watch them die slowly while birds are picking at them. That gets people's attention. What? Stoning people die in like four minutes, right? The point of stoning is everybody's responsible to do the execution. It's not one guy, it's not some guy with a hood, with an axe. Everybody has to pick up a stone and everybody has to throw it because everybody is fundamentally morally responsible for the personal morality of everybody else. That's the claim of the Torah. And when that is not taken seriously in a culture, all moral guilt from personal immorality is shared. And that because it infects everything and spirals over time and he let it cook for another 430 years before he did something about it. Now, that's not the whole argument. That's just a sketch of the argument I would make. But I just want you to see that waving your hand and saying, well, Joshua's all about genocide, isn't really true. The philosophy is bad and the history is simplistic. The book book of Joshua is not about this bigger army attacking the smaller noble people. It's actually about a massive, strong... Morally in need of judgment group that a greater providence sends a weaker people against through faith It's a lot more like lord of the rings than 300 or whatever the new one coming out is And once you realize that once you realize this is joshua A couple of ragtags that have no hope of success being sent into something they have no hope of defeating Except for that some greater providence would weave something they could never know You will not understand how the dynamic of faith is taught so that you can be strong and courageous. Because all we got is promises. Now, if the question then is, okay, well, how do we get there from here? One of the things that you could say is this. Like, if you reverse engineer creative faith or courageous faith, okay, how do you get to courageous faith? Well, the book starts out with God doing what? What? Telling Joshua a pile of times, right? I didn't even li- I list them all. There's like six where God goes, listen, be strong and courageous. Listen. Now this is a guy who's already strong and courageous. This was the guy that spied out the land, came back and was like, we can take it. Man, we could, we could take these guys. If God is with us, we could take them. And all the other guys were like, oh my God. You know, they're, they're looking for new underwear, you know. And Caleb and Joshua were like, we can do, yeah, we can do this, right? These are the guys, right? Joshua's the guy. God goes, listen, you be strong and courageous. Now, wh- why, right? It's it's very simple. God tells people things they need to hear. <laughs> right? He tells people things they need to hear. If God tells a leader, be strong and courageous, you be you be strong and courageous. The reason for that is because he needs to hear that. Because human beings are prone to cowardice, fear, disappointment, and discouragement. That's what we're prone to. Now, listen, I know I'm not the feelings preacher. I understand that. And it's usually because I think encouragement needs to be rooted in the deepest thing possible, and that's what I preach at, okay? Um, but th- th- the point here is you're gonna, you're, you have to try something. Faith is trying something that you couldn't— if, you're, if you aren't terrified of whatever you're attempting by faith— if just living for Jesus today doesn't terrify you, you don't even know what you're doing. You don't have any idea what Christianity is, right? The minute you realize what Christianity is, what it means to live for and like Jesus for like 12 hours, it terrify you to the, your toes. And so you've got—we've got to be told again, listen, you can, you can do this with my help. On the basis of the promises I've given, don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. You need this content, but listen, be strong and courageous, right? So where do you get that? Now, if we look at the book of Joshua, Joshua was was predominantly successful. So what did Joshua do? So that he would be strong and courageous and so he would do the best he could to lead people to be strong and courageous. Sorry, I thought you should see that one too. So, um, yeah. Okay, so... You may remember this slide from like four sermons ago, right? Remember this one? It turns out the Bible repeats things. Throughout the book of Joshua, again and again, you see these three things coming up again. Again and again, these come up. And we'll see this throughout the book of Judges, except the opposite, people not doing it. Deliberate choice, disciplined remembrance, and careful obedience. Now, the first one, deliberate choice— At the beginning of the book of Joshua, God says, listen, here's what you're going to do. Are you going to do it? And Joshua goes, yes. And then he tells all the people, people, tell Joshua this. And the people go, Joshua, are you going to do it? Joshua goes, yes. Right? Deliberate choice. And then at the very end of the book, what does he do? He's like 120. Right? Now think about your retirement plan. Right? Joshua does the greatest thing of his life at what ages? 80 to 120. Now you might not make to 120. But, you might want to think about your retirement plan You can retire from your job But you can never retire from your work, right? So he does this He he gets to the end of the book And so he's like 120 years old And he charges the people What does he say? He says, now Now these are people who have essentially followed the Lord all their life Because they followed Joshua, right? So these are people who are in the game And he goes, listen Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all your faithfulness With all faithfulness Throw away the gods of your for- that your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river the go- or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Right? Second most famous verse in Joshua. Maybe most famous. You may have grown up with it embroidered in your kitchen. You may have it embroidered in your kitchen or bathroom right now which is fine. That's exactly what the verse means, right? But the point is, you see what he's saying? He's saying, you've done this your whole life, now choose again. Choose right now. It'd be like every Sunday, I get up here and I go, listen, who do we serve? Who do we serve? And everybody goes, Jesus! And I go, who do we serve? Jesus! That's right. Or you go to a liturgical church, what do they do? They all stand up and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Right? That's what the creed is. Right? It's, dang it, this is who I am. In order to be faithful— You have to make so many things in your life, decision moments again and again and again. Listen, I totally believe that we come to Jesus and we accept him once. Like, we believe in Jesus, we come to him, we receive justification from our sins, we receive regeneration of heart, the the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, we are a new creation in Christ. Yes, and the next morning you wake up, you better decide if you're still serving Jesus again that day. Every day when you wake up, you're already Christian, but every day when you open your eyes, one of the first thoughts that ought to come into our minds besides, God, thank you for giving me another day, is, am I in today? Who am I? Do I serve God? Is this who, is this my identity? Every, everything comes down, and see, here's here's where you may say, well, this is a whole lot more choices in my day. Well, it is, but here's the problem. Well, here, actually, here's the benefit. If you make that choice, that choice makes most of the other choices for you. It actually decreases the number of choices you have to make in your life. Because, listen, people who have character are predictable, like everybody's like, oh, I don't want to get married and be boring. Listen, if you become a grown-up, you're gonna be boring, okay? Because because you're gonna be you're gonna be dependable. Now that doesn't mean you can't be creative and interesting. It just means like you're gonna come home every night, right? You're gonna stay with your spouse. You're gonna parent your kids till they're grown-ups. You're gonna you're gonna be. That's so predictable. Right? And in that sense. You're going to be—so many of your decisions are going to be made for you because you've made the one decision that decides all the others. You see? One of the things that's interesting about this is— um, have you ever heard of David Blaine, right? The magician guy? Okay, so David Blaine, the magician guy— uh, are you still with me? Are we going okay? Okay, so David Blaine is this magician guy, and so he, he's known for these kind of like eerie card tricks where he does nothing and can tell you what your card is, right? He's like, just pick a card. It's the nine of clubs. Yeah. You're like, that's not a trick That's, I don't know, you're Gandalf Okay, so he's, What he's actually known for more than anything else Is actually his feats of self-discipline and self-control they Have nothing to do with magic, right So He, um, he held his breath for 17 minutes on Oprah Set the new world record 17 minutes I, I mean, like, my record is like 64 seconds And I was a diver Right Like And here's the thing, the way you hold your breath for 10 plus minutes is there's a psychological thing you do to lower your heart rate about 50 beats or lower, right? Well, he was on Oprah, and so he'd practiced it, and he had done 16 minutes before by getting his heart rate almost like down to 30. Well, he gets on Oprah, and something happens with the camera and the lighting and stuff that he can't, he can't drop his heart rate. So his heart rate goes up to 100 and stays between 100 and 130, and he still broke the record over 17 minutes. Right? He did a fast so long that he could feel his arms eating themselves. He stood on top of a pole in like New York City for like, I don't know how many hours, with no safety, anything, so if he fell asleep, he would fall and die. But the one that he said was actually the hardest was it was like, I don't know, 60-something hours encased in ice. Right? So encased him in ice. He's got gloves and shoes, I think is it, and some kind of thing. And— So he can't fall asleep because if he touches the ice, it'll pull his body temperature down, he'll die, right? And so it's—he's not touching, there's a little bit of space, but his heat inside and the heat of the room makes it so it starts melting a little bit from the inside, which means he had, like, Chinese water drip torture the whole time. Like, an hour in, the drops start coming, Right? So he gets to like the day of the, where he's supposed to end at 10 o'clock that night on national television. He's hallucinating. He, he's awake, and he can't really tell what's real. He's looking out the front of the thing, and he sees a guy standing there, and he, and he says, What time is it? Right? And the guy looks at his watch and goes, Two o'clock. Right? And he goes, Oh my gosh, I have to do this another eight hours. Right? So he's—he's trying—so he's, he's, trying, so he's he just—he's like, okay, I only need to do two hours, because then after two hours, it'll only be six hours. It's like that mind trick you kind of do on yourself to get through things. And then he—so he waits like two hours, and then he looks out, and he sees another guy there. And then he kind of looks closer, and he sees it's the same—it's the same guy. And so he goes, What time is it? And the guy goes, 2.05. Right? But he made it. He made it to the end. They break him out, and they had to to take him off in an ambulance on primetime TV. But he made it to the end, right? Now here's the funny thing about this. The guys who wrote the book Willpower, the Times bestseller, said, so how do you, like, how do you prepare for this? He says, listen, he says, it's all about self-discipline. He's like, so and I, once I get a goal, I start focusing on it, and I start focusing on it, and everything in my life gets better. I eat right, I exercise right, I read more. I, everything in my life gets disciplined because I'm dead focused on that goal. And the, the term for that—see, psychologists come up with terms for things that are really helpful. And the, the term for that is pre-commitment, right? Pre-commitment. So you say, I'm going to do this. And that sets up the parameters of your thinking so that you go towards it. If you say, I'm going to accomplish this, especially if you say it publicly, it increases your felt willpower dramatically. It's the reason I'm a preacher, so I can hopefully make it through the Christian life. Right? Hold me accountable. But like, think about it. Christians have been doing this for for centuries, millennia, right? You claim the name of Jesus. You tell other people. You let them hold you accountable. That sounds like meddling, doesn't it? That's meddling. I don't want to share my secret. Well, here's the thing. Here's what, here's what we know now about brain science, right? David Blaine's like everybody else. When you pre-commit, it transforms the way you go after a goal. And you have an inno- so much more willpower. Because you know what he said about when, after he succeeds something? He said after he did this and he didn't have a new goal, he went from 180 pounds to 230 pounds in four months. The reason why his holding his breath thing wasn't in the Guinness Book of World Records is because he never got around to filling out the paperwork. One of the reasons why we build choice back into our life again and again and again is so we pre-commit. When we pre-commit, faith has a stronger driver and it It gives us more willpower and momentum. It makes it easier for us to be more courageous because we know where we're going. It's laser-focused. And then you have to tie that into disciplined remembrance because you've got to take that choice and you've got to multiply remembering it over and over and over and over and over again. This is one of the reasons why Christians have spiritual disciplines, right? Like, do you have like a quiet time or devotional time or something in the morning where you like read the Bible and pray for like whatever? If people say all the time, they're like, you know, Nick, I don't really do, I mean, I don't really want, and what's the pastor answer to that if you don't have like a quiet time? Right? Do it for, anybody know? Two minutes. That's the answer. Do it for two minutes. Or 11 days. Yeah, yeah, have it for more people. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's true, actually. Sorry. Do it for two minutes a day. Why? Well, because if you do it for two minutes, you'd be like, I know why you want me to do it for two minutes a day, because if I do it for two minutes a day, I'll like it so much I'll do it for 50. Well, okay. Yeah, hopefully you will do it a little longer. You know, you do a lot in 10 minutes. You'd be surprised how much you can do in 10 minutes. But here's the reason. If nothing else, you remember who you are at the beginning of every day, and you need that discipline. You need to remember. You need to have that moment of choice built into a remembrance moment throughout your life as much as possible. Remember what Joshua says? He says, choose this day, right now. Who do you serve? And you build it in, right? And that's true of everything. You can build it, build it into bedtimes, build it into mealtimes. Fasting is the same thing. Remembering your, your, your body's not your God, right? It's built in everything. In fact, I was actually thinking about this. I was, I was thinking about Christian tattoos, right? I think I have a slide for this. I'll go back to that in just a second. So like, Christian tattoos, right? So here, here's my question. I'm not against them. Do you use them? That's my question, right? If you've got a Christian tattoo, do you use it? Every time you see it, you go, who am I? Or that's who I am, right? So some people have little crosses, some people have little fishes, or little verses on their feet, or like, um, like some, some people like me, they have the whole ending of Revelation tattooed across their back. But <laughs> whatever it is, Whatever it is that—I mean, do you, I mean what, do you have any remembrance things built into your life? Right? What, and do you use them? Rituals are great if you use them, right? There's this great experiment that a bunch of psychologists did about, about Halloween. Uh, have you ever done a thing on Halloween where, like, you can't be home, but you don't want to be that house that doesn't give any candy? So you put a bowl out in front, and this little sign that says, please take one right? And especially conscientious people, make sure that all the candies are good candies. Like, it's the bag of little snack candy bars, right? So Lexi and I did this, like, last year, and they took everything. They took the bowl. <laughs> like, there's, like, a stainless steel bowl. It's gone. Lexi was at a yard sale, like, seven months later. There it is, sitting in the, shower. so she's like, she's like, it just showed up in my yard. I think it's mine. Why don't you take it? Okay. <laughs> right? And everybody has this experience So a bunch of psychologists are like, okay, let's do this experiment So they, they, they set up this house, right, that they knew a lot of kids would come to And they set up a room where people would come into the room And there was a little, a little, um, a little bowl And there was a mirror, but it, the mirror was facing the wall, right? And there was a secret camera And there was a little sign saying, just take one piece of candy, right? So the, the kids would come in And they look at the bowl, and they look at the sign And some of them would take one piece of candy Some would take many pieces of candy Or more than one piece of candy, right? So then— They did the experiment again, except they just turned the mirror around. So when the kid would come in, they would see the candy, they would see the police egg one, and they'd see themselves in the mirror. And their behavior changed like that. Now why is that? Why is that? And here's why. Because we lose ourselves to pragmatism when we forget who we are. That is, that is what the sinful condition does to us. It, it, dilutes and takes away your sense of who you are and so if you know who God is that tells you who you are and the more you remember who God is and who you are the more you know yourself you're 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 self-aware and so you can you feel strong and courageous because you know who you are when you lose your sense of identity which we are all constantly doing it's just how we work you just kind of wander around and then you walk up to that mirror, and there it is. And you have to watch yourself do something you know is wrong. And all, there's a number of experiences like this where they show people where they see themselves. Nobody else knows, but they, n- they have a greater sense of self-knowledge. People almost always live up to their own values at a much higher percentage. Now, some might not be the right values, but they live up to their values because most people don't even live up anywhere near to their own values, Right? So when we engage in disciplined remembrance, the whole point of that is we're constantly forgetting who we are. This reminds us who we are. So we know. And the minute that happens, courage surges, guys. It surges. Your sense of courage to be who you are is strong, You remember the one who made you You remember the promises he made You remember what you're here for You remember the tasks that you're on You remember the book of law that did depart from your mouth That you gotta get back in it You just remember that stuff And courage and strength surges And And when that happens, it's because it's from God What you're essentially doing is You're remembering the God who empowers all that And that strength and courage comes from him Through you into the vector of faith And the last one is, um Sorry, just quickly on this 1-8, remember the book of the law 4-4, set up stones to remember the crossing of the Jordan 5, remember the, the covenant of circumcision That was very memorable um, 5-10, remember the Passover and celebrate it again 24-27, when the people say, you know he says Choose the day who you will serve What you know what the other people say? We're going to serve the, God, the Lord You know what Joshua says? Pile up some stones right here You see those stones? They heard you They heard you say that and every time you walk by this pile of stones, you remember they heard you say you would serve the Lord. Right? Even Achid, the guy who like steals stuff and they had not kill him, they burn everything in his household, but they pile stones on him. And it says it's still there to this day. So people would remember the price of faking it. Right? Remember. And then the last is careful obedience. Joshua 23, 6. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. That's at the end. At the beginning, it said this, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Turn it over and over again in your mind so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. One of the th- you remember that David Blaine thing? One of the things that he, used to s- he said about that is he said, the thing about willpower is, When you live in a self-disciplined way, everything feeds everything So a lot of us think Like, okay, so here, I'll just Let's talk about my sins, okay, right So TV And food, okay F-O-O-D is my bail, okay Right And Over here is my study time with Jesus And preparing sermons and like doing my calling, right And I really do think in a certain place in me, that I can do this with absolute discipline, and I don't have to be really that disciplined here. And that is not true. Because when you are disciplined, across the board, everything feeds everything, and you're more disciplined about everything. And you can live on purpose, and it's wonderful. But if you let certain areas just kind of be, they will always backfeed in that thing and pull on your discipline and everything else. Wherever you allow a lack of discipline, a lack of careful obedience to fester, it will be the place that attacks the self-discipline and every, because you're practicing. Whenever you do that, you're practicing to obeying your stomach. You're practicing obeying your immediate gratificational needs. You're practicing obeying pragmatism. You're—and pre- then you get—here's so what, you get good at it. <laughs> and then when you're trying to be disciplined, it saps the strength out of it. And you're much more prone to fear and much more prone to discouragement and much less prone to courage and strength. And here's the other thing. Those are always the root areas of self-justification. And self-justification is the path to the dark side, right? Self-justification, if that gets to hang out anywhere, wherever wherever you aren't disciplined in the sense of obeying whatever you know God has commanded you, if there's something that you know darn well, God has said, hey man, look, you need to stay away from that. You need to not do that. And you go, ah— by definition, if you're a Christian, by definition, you are indulging in self-justification, right? By definition. You're doing something you know you're not supposed to do, right? You know you're justifying it, and that—that that, that grows. Self-justification grows, and it grows everywhere, and it grows fast. And as episode three of Star Wars clearly teaches— that leads to the dark side. It'll always—it comes—it comes around. It takes over your whole personality. It is a lever that is infinitely long. Remember that math that math thing? Like, how long a lever could—right? You get an infinitely long lever, it'll lift anything, right? It is just—it is a lever with a lot of fulcrum. Self-justification, it will get you. And being careful to obey everything is how you find out where you're self-justifying. And when you see that God said, hey, don't do that, and you're like, yeah, oh, I'm going to do it. Boom, there it is. You found it. You found it. The the commands of God, you're like, oh, there's such a drag. Well, there are such a drag, and they can save your life in a way nothing else can. It depends on what, what kind of attitude you want to have, right? You can have the pissy little attitude of like, I don't like doing all this stuff. Or you can be like, every command of the Lord is loving, good, truthful, and right. And it stands against my sinful condition so that I would know about myself. And if I'm careful to obey, I can realize that and and feel the surge of courage and strength that comes from obeying in everything. (laughs) The book of Joshua is all about a generation of people who, following this one leader under God, did those three things. They made deliberate choices. They did Remember things in a disciplined way And they were careful to obey For the most part There were some There were some misses among the people But not really with Joshua And the book of Judges Is all about how they didn't In the next generation And what happened to them But if you want to believe the gospel In the whole Bible If you want to know what it means To follow Jesus with real faith At some point Jesus says It's time to get up and go And when it's time to go It will require courage and strength And courage and strength don't grow on trees they come from Jesus, they come through the gospel, and they come from people willing to exercise faith in three very clear ways that we can do. We can do them. Choosing, remembering, obeying. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to recognize—we want to recognize your goodness in all that you've done Um. It is very difficult to have the attitude Of the Apostle John in Revelation Who looked at your judgment Your final judgment in the end And said, even so, come Lord Jesus To to glory in Your choice Of judgment Is very hard for us to do But we know your word comes forth And says that all of your works Are faithful, just, true, righteous And good All your works of judgment, all your works of redemption it's hard for us. Help us help us to be more open-minded. It's a strange prayer to pray in Madison. But help us to be open-minded to who you are and what you're teaching us. And help us to see how to have courageous and strong faith by trusting in you and your ways. And Father, would you give us and lead us in the kind of strength and courage we need? Because we believe it should be derived from your promises. The one that you chose to repeat in this context was... I will never leave you nor forsake you, which you chose in your good providence to put on the the mouth of Jesus for us. Like we heard a couple weeks ago from Vinsburg when he said, it says in Hebrews, God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can say, God is with us. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Father, please make us strong and courageous through Christ. Amen.